I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. In our exposition of this wonderful epistle, we're coming today to the end of chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And to catch the entire context, I want to begin reading in verse 16 and uh, all the way through verse 23, and I'll pray for the Lord's help for us even at this time. So, let me read. Paul says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and self and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And I feel the need just to pray for the Lord to help us to understand these things. Let's pray. Lord, I know that um, even the natural mind, apart from the Spirit of God, cannot understand the things of your truth because they're spiritually discerned. And apart from your Spirit, we are wallowing in our own self-attempts. God, but with Your Spirit, You can illumine our hearts and our minds. And I, I beg You to do that now. God, stir my heart. Stir our hearts to hear and be attentive to these words. I pray that the, the warning that Paul puts upon these people might be heeded by us at Rock Valley Bible Church. That You would continue to conform us to the image of Your Son. That we would know how it is we ought to walk how it is we ought to carry ourselves about. And I pray, Lord, even as I, as I speak, may You prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper as this message so fits that appropriately as we need to lean on Christ and not on anything else, not by rules and regulations, but by faith and trust in Him. God, so stir our hearts, enliven our minds, renew our spirits. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've seen the last several weeks, I've entitled my, my message is Spiritual Peer Pressure. Spiritual Peer Pressure, Part 1, Part 2, and this morning, Part 3. Because it's what Paul is talking about here. It's really the, the core of why Paul sought to address the letter of, of Colossians. Because in the town of Colossae, people were coming with all these rules and regulations and mysticisms and, and appearances and different things. And Paul said, no, 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 don't pay attention to that because your sufficiency is in Christ alone. Many have divided this section into three sections using three different words. I've not really used all of them, but I think it's a, it's a good definition to define it with these three words. I want to give them to you. First one is legalism. Legalism is verses 16 through 18. It describes a submission of one's heart to external standards that 
people think that people need in, in religion. And two weeks ago, in verses 16 and 17, we saw how the, the role of Jewish culture in the church was elevated to a, to a high standard. And people were saying that to be a, a good Christian and a, a spiritual person, you need to submit yourselves to diets and days. Legalistic standards. But the reality is the diets and the days were mere shadows that pointed to Christ. The second word people often I outline this passage with is mysticism. Mysticism in verses 18 and 19, right? We see there the elevation of experience over truth, right? Mysticism describes a religion that's based upon feelings and impressions rather than a, a religion that's focused upon truth, rather than a religion that's focused upon, upon uh, reality. And such a focus, if it's on angels and taking a stand on visions, is going to dethrone the authority of Christ. So verse 19 says, you need to hold fast to Him who sits high upon the throne, the one who's in authority. And this week we come to a third word. It's asceticism. This comes verses 20 through 23, right? This word describes a, a self-induced discipline as the key to becoming closer to God. Self-induced discipline, right? The idea is if you deprive your physical body of what's comfortable in life, somehow it's going to enliven and inactivate your spiritual man within you. That's the idea here. And in many ways, asceticism is a, is a partner to legalism. The, the subtle difference might be that asceticism is more self-inflicted. It's got a voluntary element to it, whereas legalism is generally forced upon you with high pressure to conform. Uh, asceticism describes also a, a rigid discipline describe, to deprive yourself of earthly pleasures. Legalism, on the other hand, just focuses about um, things you do or things you shouldn't do, which may not have this um, impression about depriving your body. But these aesthetic practices are going to come in our, in our verses here. And we see that particularly here in verse 21. There are those who are putting forth these man-made decrees that said, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, right? Don't, don't touch these things because those things are bad. Keep your body pure by inflicting it with other things. We also see at the end of verse 23 about these people who had this self-made religion. They said, in order to get to God, I'm going to inflict this upon myself. And inflicting it upon themselves, they also self-abasement. It's really talking about whipping themselves or cutting themselves or beating themselves or bruising their body. That's what the next one's talking about, right? Severe treatment of the body. Somehow hurting their body so as to think that they can have a purer walk with God. The idea behind all these ascetic practices is that somehow in some way you can beat your body into submission and thereby you become closer to God. And let me ask you, do you want to become closer to God? Do you? I hope so. I mean, why, isn't that why you're here at church? To worship the Lord, to be strengthened in your faith, to increase in your love towards Him, to see sin in your life diminish, and ultimately, right, walk, to walk closer and closer and closer with God? Well, let me tell you, asceticism isn't the answer. The answer to a closer walk with God isn't by beating yourself and self-inflicting these types of things upon you. And to show you so, I want to ask you this morning two questions that really will, will form an outline of our passage this morning. We'll get at the issues that Paul's talking about. Here's my first question. My first question is, have you been redeemed? Have you been redeemed? 
Maybe that's the greatest question that anyone might ever ask you. And by, by asking you whether you've been redeemed or not, I'm simply meaning, have you experienced the forgiveness of sins that's offered to you through faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, the plain teaching of the Bible couldn't be clearer. If you repent from your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. You will spend eternity in God's presence, enjoying His pleasures forevermore. You will be at peace with God. But if you fail to believe upon the Lord, you will not be saved. Your sins will not be forgiven. You'll face the wrath of God. You'll spend eternity bearing your just punishment, what your sins deserved. So I ask you, have you been redeemed? That's what Paul's getting at here in verse 20 when he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. This is just another way to say it. Have you died with Christ? The great reality of our salvation is that through faith, we become partakers in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You see, there's this very real sense where believers in Jesus become sharers in what, what He did when He walked on the earth. It's not only just His sufferings that we're sharers in, we are. And we're also sharers in His victory as well. Jesus died to sin so that we might die to sin as well. I mean, look back at chapter 2, verse 11. We went through this material a couple weeks ago. And it speaks about how interwoven our life is with the life of Christ, right? When you died, when He died, you died. When He was buried, you were buried. When He was made alive, you were made alive. When He was raised, you were raised. In fact, I want to read verses 11 through 14, and I want to have your antennas up. And I want you to look at how closely connected our life is with Christ and how many times it says with Him and in Him we experience these things, right? Look, Colossians 2, verse 11. And in Him... That's in Christ, with Christ. You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, right? The spiritual circumcision of the heart, right? And the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, you, you, you participated in His burial, in which you also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God. who raised Him from the dead. As Jesus was raised from the dead, believers in Christ are also raised from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. When we were dead, God, He made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. As believers in Christ, we share in His life. We share in His death. We've been buried with Him, been raised with Him, made alive together with Him. Our sins are nailed to the cross. Right? That's the great, the great reality that gives us the power and ability to conquer sin in your life. Right? It's not asceticism, as we'll see in a little bit. It's not whipping your body and giving severe treatment to your body that's going to allow you to, to conquer sin. It's your sharing in Christ that allows you to conquer sin. In fact, that's repeated often in the Bible. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live 
I live in the flesh. Life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Right? He's describing the life of a Christian. Through faith, He's become a participant in the life of Christ. He's been crucified with Christ. When Christ was crucified, we, in some sense, were crucified with Him. And Paul says, as I have crucified with Him, I'm dead. I no longer live. But now I do live, and the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who was sacrificed for me. And it's this new life that gives you power to conquer sin. And that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 20 of Colossians chapter 1. He says, listen, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why is if you're living in the world, do you submit to these decrees? You know, it's, it's not like you're living in this world. You should be living in another world. You should be living in the world encapsulated, joined to, shared with Jesus Christ. We'll see next week in chapter 3, verse 1, that you've been raised up with Christ. And if indeed you have been raised up with Christ, right? we need to keep seeking the things above, right? Not these things of the world, not the elementary principles of the world. Not the passing pleasures of sin. But if you've been redeemed by Him, you've experienced your life with Him. And that's what's going to give you power to walk closer to God. That's what's going to give you power to walk righteously. In Romans 6 is the same thing. Paul writes, If we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over Him. For the death that He died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's talking about we've connected with this life of Christ. If we have shared with Christ in his death by faith, we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. And the fleeting pleasures of sin are gone. It's through our sharing in Christ that we can conquer sin. It's not through rules and regulations the way to do this is through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what J.C. Ryle wrote long ago. He said, He who supposes that Jesus Christ only lived and died again in order to provide justification and forgiveness of sins for his people has yet much to learn. Whether he knows it or not, he is dishonoring our blessed Lord and making him only half a Savior. The Lord Jesus has undertaken everything that His people's souls require, not only to deliver them from the guilt of their sins by His atoning death, but from the dominion of their sins by placing in their hearts the Holy Spirit, and not only to justify them, but also to sanctify them. He is thus not only their righteousness, but also their sanctification. As the Spirit works in us, as we have been connected with Christ, that's the way to overcome sin. That's your victory over sin. So I ask you this. Have you been redeemed? Because if not, you'll find no victory over your sin. You won't. And maybe you're here this morning and really want to have victory over sin. Maybe you have desperately wanted a close walk with God. Maybe you've tried and tried and tried and tried and all different types of things, but nothing has worked. Well, this next question is for you. Point number two. Are you being regulated? Are you being regulated? By I mean, this, I simply mean, is your life controlled by a series of rules and regulations that have come upon you that are you are using to try to help you get closer to God? Are, are you trying to get to God through submitting to a series of do's and don'ts 
figuring that if you do these things, you'll be there? Well, if you're doing this, I commend your effort. It's a good thing to be seeking hard after God. It's a good thing to be making great efforts to know and love God. But may I suggest you're misguided. I mean, it's a commendable thing for a person who says he wants to travel around the world next month. Isn't it? Say, I want to travel the world. Hey, great. You can see all these places. But the one who says, yeah, I'm going to walk around the world is a bit misguided. They think they're going to walk around the world next month. You're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. You're not going to make it. And so I suggest to you that if your life is being regulated, you're not going to make it. The the Jews in the time of, of Jesus were doing a great job pursuing righteousness, but they were misguided. Romans 10, verses 2 through 4, Paul says, I testify about these Jewish people. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Hmm. That's what he says. They had a great zeal for God. They were pursuing after God. But they were doing so trying to establish their own righteousness rather than submitting themselves to the righteousness of God which is found in Christ Jesus alone. Right? And this may be your case this morning. It may be that you've been making great efforts to follow hard after God. You may be coming to church consistently, fighting hard from certain sins, but in trying to, to do so, you've not found victory. Right? You've been trying to keep yourself from others who have who've got a worldly influence on you. But it may be in doing so, you've neglected the righteousness of God that comes to those who believe. We'll begin the last half of verse 20. Paul really asks, Why, if you've been redeemed, right? Answer the first question, yes, I've been redeemed. Well, second, are you regulated? Why, as if you're living in the world, do you submit yourselves to these decrees like do not handle and do not taste and do not touch? If you've been redeemed from your sins, right? You've been redeemed and you've been set free to live a Spirit-filled life that's beyond this world. Why are you living as if you're in this world? Your life should be different. As believers in Christ, we ought not to be bound by rules and regulations. Now, when Paul mentions these things, do not handle and do not taste and do not touch, he's talking about man-made rules which have been created by others and pressed upon you to follow in an effort to make you holy and righteous, right? He's not talking about commands of God, which of course we're to follow. Right? And the one who's been raised up with God, his commandments actually are delight and a joy. First John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So he's not talking about God's commands here. He's talking about man-made commands. He's focusing upon those external rules and regulations that man have made. We know that because verse 22, which we'll get to a little bit, says that these things are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Now, we don't know exactly what these regulations were. All of them, though, have this sense that we need to stay away from something in the world. Right? Don't handle it. Don't taste it. Don't even touch it with your fingertips. So he's talking about And Paul's reference here, I think, seems pretty broad, referring to lots of different, a flavor of all the different regulations going on here in Colossae. And maybe some of these rules had to do with Jewish purification rites, right? Don't do this on the Sabbath, right? Don't touch these tools on the Sabbath. Or maybe eating, right? Don't eat pork. 
Or maybe a corpse. Don't touch a corpse because you're going to be defiled. Maybe some of them come from a Gentile perspective because we know in Colossae, like, all of these different heresies were coming in. And from a Gentile perspective, maybe maybe saying, right, don't handle that pagan festival. Don't eat any of that meat that was sacrificed to an idol. Don't even walk upon the pagan grounds. Don't even touch it. And I think even knowing a broader history of the New Testament might lead us to say even that some of these other things, right, might, might, be, might be bigger, right? People advocating abstaining from, from marriage. We know in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that there were those who were going around the early church abstaining from, you need to, encouraging people to abstain from marriage. Or maybe from specific kinds of people, right? Stay away from those kind of people because they're unclean. Right? We know in the church that there was a degree of prejudice in the early church. But in all these ways, in so doing, basically those teachers in Colossae were placing hazard signs on all different types of activities. Right? You know what I'm talking about? You've seen the, the, <clears throat> the radioactive waste sign. You've seen the high voltage sign, the thing. Right? You ever see those things and say, hey, I really want to come close to that. You don't. You want to stay away from them. The people in Colossae were saying, hey, consider these things as radioactive material. Consider these things as skull and crossbones like poison. Don't even touch it. Stay away from these high voltage electrical wires. View these things as you would view one who has leprosy. Just stay away. I remember I worked in the hospital for six years doing computer work and for the most part I didn't have much contact with patients. But... Occasionally, I'd be called into a room to help a, a nurse with a computer there. And um, sometimes, walking into a room, I would see before I enter this sign on the, uh, the front of the, the doorpost that would say, Stop! And I forget the name of it. You need to help me. But somehow, somebody there has a communicable disease. And you stop. And then you, you read there and it says, Oh, just put on gloves, right? So you put on your gloves. And then you walk in. You make sure not to touch your gloves to your face, right? You just touch these things and then you throw your gloves away. Right? Because that person is unclean or put on a mask so as to protect yourself and maybe protect them of airborne pathogens. That's what Paul, that's what the people at Colossae were saying about these things. Don't touch them. Stay far away from them. Put on your rubber gloves. I'm trying to think of some uh, similar regular regulations today. Might be this. Might be you stay away from Hollywood. Stay away from Hollywood. Have nothing to do with theaters. Don't go near them. Don't touch them. Could be that. Or stay away from rock and roll music. Don't listen to it. Don't buy it. Don't go to stores that sell it. Don't ever have drums in the church because that is the epitome of wickedness. And you know, we might laugh at that, but I, I do know. I was talking with somebody who, um, who was in England ministering some churches there and they think that the epitome of worldliness is having drums in a church, this particular church they were at. Could be that. Don't touch drums. Or maybe some churches here in our land say stay away from certain translations of the Bible. Don't read them. Don't purchase them. The King James is the only one that's correct. There are churches that say that. Or stay away from companies that support the gay agenda or Planned Parenthood. To support those stores is to support their causes. Don't go into their stores. Don't even drive in their parking lots. Maybe something like this. Boys, don't get your ears pierced. It's a sign you've been sucked into the world system. 
And don't ever pierce another body part because that's just wicked. Stay away from that. Girls, don't you ever wear pants. There are churches that say that. There are people that say, don't send your kids to public school. You're, giving your, you're training your children to Babylon and the devil. There are people who have said that. Don't let your kids date. Courtship. Courtship's the only biblical model. Right? Those all types of things. We don't know exactly what's happening there, but this might be the type of things. Those are man-made rules. You can't support biblically with these things. Now, many of those things, it's not, it's not necessarily bad. But to have them come upon you and to say, oh, since I don't touch Hollywood, right? I don't go to theaters. Boy, I'm doing good. That's where you start getting into trouble. I think you need to realize some of the intention behind these regulations, right? The false teachers were trying to keep people away from sin. It was perhaps with a, a good intent. They weren't trying to say, hey, Colossians, just do whatever you want. They were trying to say, hey, keep away from these things. Don't even touch them with your fingertips. Make sure you have rubber gloves if you're ever going to touch them. But you need to realize that these things are not helpful in bringing you close to God. They're not helpful in keeping you away from sin. And Paul gives three reasons why they're not helpful. First of all, is they deal with temporary things. Just temporary things, right? First half of verse 22. We see the helplessness of these rules, right? They're dealing with things destined to perish with use. In this point, this instance, he points out that rules and regulations are dealing with temporary things, right? You touch them and they'll perish. I mean, we're dealing in a, we live in a consumable world. Things rot and things decay. You need to replace them. And so those things you put in your mouth, what happens to them? <clears throat> they go into your stomach. And out the other side, they, they're, they're consumed with use. After you handle some object, eventually it's going to be discarded at some point. And realize that it's not staying away from physical objects that's going to make you righteous. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of treating others appropriately. Righteousness is being kind to one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, living in thankfulness. But there are many in the Christian world who think that righteousness is a matter of the things you stay away from, the things you avoid. I remember talking with a pastor of a church and he said that through years and years and years and years, their legalistic teaching of this church, even some before he got there, he said, our people do a very good job at at putting off, staying away. But we don't do a very good job at putting on. In other words, right? we don't do a good job of of doing what we need to practice, which is what all of Colossians 3 is about. And for a few months, we're going to have a lot of application coming here about what true righteousness looks like and how it practices itself, how a love to God will work itself out. But, you know, people can get pretty good at religion when it's just external. As long as you stay on the surface things, you just have to stay away from things. You, You can conform to a culture pretty easily. But once you seek to delve internally into the soul, it's when people struggle. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan pastor, once wrote this, It were an easy thing to be a Christian if religion stood only in a few outward works and duties. But to take the soul to task and to deal groundly with our hearts and to let conscience have its full work and to bring the soul into spiritual subjection to God, this is not so easy a matter. 
because the soul out of love of self is loath to enter into itself lest it should have other thoughts of itself than it would have. And he's talking there about, you know, Christianity is easy if we stay on the externals. But it's more difficult when we get down into the heart. And the externals aren't going to help you in your walk with God. And Paul's argument here is that it's your soul is the heart of religion, not the things you handle and taste and touch, because those things are perishing. Those things are only temporary. And Paul says, don't submit to those, those decrees, right? And then at the end of verse 22, we see a second reason, that rules are not only temporary things, rules are also man-made. Paul says, stay away from these rules that are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Did you realize that almost every religion in the world has people who seek to make themselves holy by strict religious practices? I mean, Christianity has its monks who seek holiness through their seclusion. Islam have men who have memorized the Bible, committed to leading their prayers, looked up to in many ways as holy men. Buddhism has its monks who can seclude themselves high on a hill and engage in prayers. Hinduism has their holy men who live apart from society. You realize also that almost all the world religions have rules and regulations about what can be eaten? Then the Christian world, broadly speaking, the Roman Catholic Church often says no meat during Lent. No meat on Fridays during Lent or whatever. Jews can't eat pork. Muslims stay away from pork as well. Hindus can't eat beef. Many Buddhists won't eat meat at all. Mormons stay away from caffeine. I mean, lots of groups, lots of religions have all these rules. And the fact that every religion has these types of rules demonstrate that they're simply man-made attempts to seek to obtain their righteousness. But regarding the physical universe, there's nothing special about any substance upon earth. Jesus declared all foods clean. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with any food. Regarding physical objects, Paul said we, we know there's no such thing in the world as an idol. There's no God but one. Physical things, there's nothing inherently evil about touching these things. As if keeping away from them are going to keep you holy. In fact, near the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 4, a few verses help us in this matter. Paul writes to those who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. God's created marriage and He's created foods to be gratefully shared in. Right? Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God in prayer. Everything in this world is, is good. Nothing that we need to reject. There's nothing intrinsically evil about the things of the world. Now, certainly there's things that communicate and Issues that you should stay away from. But there's nothing physically wrong that, that these Colossian dealers, oh, don't touch that because if you touch it, somehow defilement's going to go through your bodies, right? I remember being a little child and um, playing with little girls. And, uh, right, if, if you touch them, what happens? You with a what? The cooties, right? And we used to take out this uh, spray bottle. And what would we do? Right? <clears throat> That's the flavor of the religion that the Colossians were talking about. Rules and regulations make us holy, but they don't come from the Heavenly Father, man-made. 
Well, the third reason why Paul says don't submit yourself to decrees is because rules are useless. And really, this gets to the heart of the issue. Rules and regulations and external demands have no power in curbing the desires of the flesh. Listen to that again. Rules and regulations and external demands have no power in curbing the desires of the flesh. They might make you look good. They might give you a shell of spirituality. But in the end, they're not going to help you in any way. That's what Paul says here in verse 23. These matters, right? don't touch, don't handle, have to be sure. <laughs> it's sure. It's clear that they have the appearance of wisdom. It looks like you're wise. It looks like you're godly. In self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But here comes... They are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, Paul's saying these rules and regulations have appearance that you're practicing religion pretty nicely, but ultimately, they're not going to help you curb the appetites of your flesh. In fact, if anything, they create a greater desire in your flesh for some of those things, right? Have you ever seen a sign that says, uh, wet paint, don't touch? What do you do? You want to? Well, is it dry? Let, let's touch it. You know, it's like. If you didn't see that sign, would you say, "Oh, I want to touch this"? You wouldn't, right? Wet paint on the piano. You all wouldn't. Don't come up here and say, "Hey, I want to touch that." But as soon as the sign is there, as soon as the regulation there, it stirs up the appetites within you to want you to desire to go after that. Have you ever fasted for a period of time? What do you start thinking about? Oh, I want some food. I want some food. Right? And as soon as you abstain from that, it's something that your body says, I want it. I want it. I want it. You know, and you're attracted to that. You ever tried to abstain from TV or media for a month or so? You start craving it. Right? You start saying, hey, I want it. You ever decide to stay away from some computer game? Or maybe cigarettes? Uh, maybe something else. You just want to do that. And, and, and the lack of it gives you a greater desire for it. In fact, that's exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. It's not only true of man-made rules, it's also true of God-made rules as well. In Romans 7, he talks about his conversion. He said, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, apart from the law, it says don't covet. Paul's saying, I wouldn't know about coveting. It'd be just easy. I'd just go. But, but then the commandment comes. The tenth commandment says, you shall not covet. And Paul says, ooh. And what does it start doing in his soul? He said, sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, which I heard, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Right? Ignorance is bliss. But when the commandment came... Right? Sin became alive and I died. I saw the commandment. It stirred sin in me. And the sin in me became alive. And as a result, I died to sin. And this commandment, which was to result in life, right? don't covet. That's a good thing. It proved to result in death for me. Why? Because sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So, these rules and regulations really has nothing to do with the quality of the rule or regulation put forth, the existence of a rule will not help you in achieving righteousness. It will only expose your sin all the more. And that's the purpose of the law of God is, right? Is to show you what God requires and then you see sin 
and then you realize your need for a Savior. I read this week of, a, of an ascetic named Paul the Simple. He lived in the 4th century. His practice was to carry around 300 pebbles wherever he went. He had in his left pocket 300 little rocks. And every time he said a prayer, he took a rock out and he put it here. And every time he said another prayer, he took a pebble out from this pocket and he put it in this pocket. And he just said, every day, I pray 300 prayers. He all these, and he put them over there. And he thought himself to be pretty righteous until he heard of a virgin who prayed 700 times a day. And you know what happened to Paul the Simple? He was in despair. Oh, I don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. Because that's what commandments do. That's what asceticism does. It doesn't help you with your sin. It exposes your sin. It exposes where you lack. That's what commandments do. They aren't powerful to help you spiritually. They expose you where you lack. You know, in the church, there's always been those who have afflicted themselves with self-abasement and severe treatment of the body to help get them closer to God. As Christianity spread in the early centuries, there were those who sought a higher spirituality Sometimes they took um, extreme forms. The third century is a man named Anthony. Sold his 300 acres of fertile land, gave the money to the poor. He lived in complete solitude. His food consisted of bread and salt, sometimes dates. He drank water only. He ate only once a day after sunset. He often fasted from two to five days. Trying to be righteous. In the fourth century lived a man named Macarius. For many years, he chose to eat only once a week and slept standing and leaning on a staff. Another contemporary, his name was Hilarion. He lived in the wilderness of Gaza in a small cell that was only five feet high, so he was forced to stoop in his dwelling because he couldn't stand up. He never ate before sunset. He slept on the ground, cut his hair only once a year at Easter. You know, and almost the universal testimony of all these people is that these type of things didn't help them in righteousness. They saw their sin evermore. Uh, these people even gave testimonies of battling with the devil and, and fighting and temptations because they can't get rid of themselves because they're battling with it. My favorite is this man named Simeon. He ate food only once each week on Sunday for 26 years. He'd fast 40 days of Lent outdoing Moses and Jesus and Elijah. For the last 36 years of his life, he lived on top of this pillar would start off about 10 feet, then it went to 20 feet. By the time he died, it was up to maybe about 40 feet or so. In this effort to make himself righteous, the platform at the top of the pillar is only three feet wide, so he couldn't lie down or sit. He could only lean upon this railing to rest every day. And Philip Schaff wrote, There St. Simeon stood, many long and weary days and weeks and months and years, exposed to the scorching sun, the drenching rain, the crackling frost, the howling storm, living in daily death and martyrdom. Thinking themselves to be righteous and and trying to be righteous. And a lot of people looked up to them and and sought to go after them, but in the end, that's not going to help curb your fleshly indulgence. Well, it may stop you from eating. Because they're not going to give you the food up there on the pillar except but once a day because that's what you told them to do. But it's not going to curb your desire for food or it's not going to make you any holy, more holy. And monasteries, you know, have abounded. There are monks that have um, devoted themselves to, to beating themselves into prayers. I think the most famous of these is Martin Luther who spent his time in prayer and meditation and confession to oftentimes go without sleep. 
He'd lie on bone-chilling cold floors without a blanket. He'd whip himself to punish himself for his sin. And so serious is Martin Luther that he later commented, If anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. And of course, we know what Martin Luther's testimony was. Did he gain heaven by the life of a monk? He didn't. He discovered right justification by faith alone. And that's how you make yourself righteous. And these things don't help you conquer sin. I remember reading a biography of a man named Rabbi Maharaj. He wrote his testimony in a, in a book form called Death of a Guru. And he really illustrates this well. He was, at a, he was a Hindu man, a descendant of a long line of Brahmin priests. As a young boy of like 10 or 11, went off to train as a yogi. He meditated for hours at a time. He'd go off into his room and meditate for hours. And as his family identified him as a spiritual boy or spiritual man, they gave him special privileges, right? They'd let him stay in his room, right? They'd feed him food and he would just do his yogi thing, right? Producing this great karma. And yet time and time again, in the testimony of his book, he says of how impossible it was for the hours he spent in meditation to help him overcome his fleshly habits. At one point he talked about he was a slave to smoking cigarettes. He said, the habit was now beyond my power to break. I often thought how strange it was about my vegetarianism that I wouldn't buy cheese in a shop if it had been cut with a knife that had been used to cut sausage or meat. And yet I couldn't stop smoking, even though I knew it was ruining my lungs. Out in the fields, alone, I chain-smoked one cigarette after another, inhaling deeply with every puff. And worst of all, because I didn't want anyone to know of my secret habit, I had to steal the cigarettes, even though I had plenty of money. And that troubled my conscience deeply. All his meditation and and all of his yogi and all of his mysticism. It it didn't help curb the appetites of flesh. He knew his own sinfulness. And yet, because he was considered a holy man, he struggled with his times. He was even worshipped as a god. Filled his heart with pride. He later would confess his pride, his selfishness and hatred that's filled his heart. And though he meditated for hours at a time, and attained peace, it was useless in transferring it to his daily life. And listen to his testimony. He said, It troubled me deeply to see how this state of blissful peace I had reached in meditation could so easily be destroyed by a scolding from my aunt accusing me of laziness or of failing to do my fair share around the house. Normally a peaceful person at such times, my temper would flare and I'd use harsh language in defending myself. And then comes the poignant question. Here's what he asks. Why should I, the most religious one in the household, continue to abuse members of the family? And that's the thing that drew him to Christ. He saw that all this meditation and all of this holiness, ritual, self-abasement, punishing his body, right, fasting, didn't help curb his appetites. And that's what Paul's point is here, right? Self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, it's no value against fleshly indulgence. I don't care how much you fast. I don't care how much you pray. I don't care how much scripture you memorize. I don't care how many rules you keep. I don't care how self-disciplined you are or how severely you treat your body. These things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They may give you a form of godliness, but apart from the sovereign working of Christ within you, You'll deny its power. I love the illustration John Piper gives. He, he said this. He said, The enemy is sending against us every day 
the Sherman tank of the flesh with its canons of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And if we try to defend ourselves or our church with pea-shooter regulations, we'll be defeated even in our apparent success. The only defense is to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the endurance and patience with joy. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, grows with a growth which is from God. And Piper's simply pointing out here, I'll, I'll transfer it to lay language for some of the kids to understand, and some of you parents too. He says, the flesh is comparable to this big army tank, covered all around with armor. It's got these, these tracks on it that can go over all different types of terrain. It's got this big nozzle out the front of it that can, you know, and shoot missiles out the bam. And then with rules and regulations, it's as if we take this straw, take a little sheet of the sermon note paper and kind of chew it up to this little ball and put it in there and against this tank go, and try to beat this tank. That's what it's like. It's not going to work. There's no way. Rules and regulations, trying to make yourself pure, are like pea shooters fighting against tanks. So how can we be made holy? Can we be made holy by overcoming the power of the flesh? How can we do it? Gets back to verse 20. It's right where we started, where we're going to end, or we need to keep our focus, right? If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, there's no need to submit yourself to these things to make yourself holy, right? It all gets back to Jesus and the life that we share with Him by faith. And I say, how appropriate is it for us this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper Right? To come back constantly, to remember that our life is in Him. Every four to six weeks at Rock Valley Bible Church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper whenever it's an appropriate text. It's open to all who believe in Christ, who are trusting in Him. But yet it's a solemn occasion. It's a time we need to take seriously. Right, The Scripture tells us to examine our hearts during this time. Scripture calls us to examine our lives and maybe your Christianity this morning consists only of rules and regulations. If that's the case, I'd call you to repent. I'd call you to trust in the Lord. And, and maybe in your Christian life, you've, you've drifted to, and this is always the pull, to, to trust in these things because that's what you've always done. And you can, your, your Christianity can run on autopilot. It's as if a pilot... Right? goes and flies and then flicks on the switch and just kind of goes because that's how it is. And your Christian life can do that apart from realizing what it really takes and what really is going on is that you've died with Christ and it's the sacrifice of Him and it's Him working in you which is allowing you to overcome the world and allowing you to overcome sin. Right? So maybe it's a time even here of self-focus and, and refocusing back again and say, you know what, I, I've been straying, I've been focusing on these rules, I've been trusting in my goodness and my righteousness and I need to realize that my strength to overcome sin is in Christ and Him working in me. And as you examine yourself and you say, not, not that I'm doing everything right, but God, I'm trusting in You and, and I desire to see You work in me. Boy, take the supper and take of it and be strengthened. Right? We simply lift up a little piece of bread that Jesus said represents His body and we drink of the cup together which represents His blood. It's just a, a reminder through tasting and drinking of everything that took place 2,000 years ago on the cross that ultimately is our power source to allow us to overcome fleshly indulgence. So I ask you now even to bow your heads.
and prepare your hearts for this time. It's a, it's a time really of reflection, but it's a time of joy because it's a time in which we can think about the, the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. So look at your heart. Look at your life. Maybe your life has degenerated into rule-keeping. Pledge again to drop the rules and to trust Christ. Not that you engage yourself in sin, but that you trust in Christ and to power, give you power over the sin. And Lord, I pray as we have even thought about our lives, examining them, I pray we'd be quick to confess our sin, quick to look to You, quick to realize that in Jesus Christ all our sins are forgiven. We don't have to earn or merit anything. And yet for those who have been forgiven, we have this insatiable desire, God, to do what's pleasing in Your sight and to be like You because that's what You do. The grace of God has come teaching all men to deny selfishness and ungodliness and worldly desires. You've come and worked in our life. And so, God, I pray that you'd, you'd help us now. God, through this supper that we celebrate together, to regain new strength to realize where our power comes from. So, Lord, I think as we sing these songs, we contemplate the body and blood of Christ. Be among us. Commune with us. Teach us. Show us. Help us. Strengthen us. Because, Lord, we desperately need your help. We desperately need your strength. Amen. I'm going to uh, invite the men to come. Jake will lead us in some songs.